You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. It's presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise. I'm going to start all over just for a second. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Professor Brendan Sims. He is a prolific, incredibly respected. The reviews of his book by other historians are simply unbeatable. But Professor Sims is Zooming from the United Kingdom to talk about his book, along with co-author Charlie Laderman, Hitler's American Gamble, Pearl Harbor, and Germany's March to Global War. Thank you, Professor Sims, very much. Thank you for having me. Your book focuses on the five days from the attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th, until Germany's declaration of war on December 11th. Why did you decide to take that approach? Our view was that this was a, an absolutely critical hinge period in global history, in the sense that the attack on Pearl Harbor by Japan brought the United States into a war, but not, in fact, into the war. The war, of course, in the autumn of 1941 was the European War, which had been going on since 1939, of course, and had then escalated after the fall of France and then the invasion of the Soviet Union in June 1941. And people tend to assume that after Pearl Harbor, the United States more or less naturally and without any difficulty, simply went to war with Germany. Some people think that, in fact, the United States uh, declared war on Germany, and insofar as they know that, in fact, it was the other way around, they never really ask, why did Hitler declare war on the United States? Because if he hadn't done so, then that would have made Roosevelt's task 
very much more difficult and will probably have led to a very different, not necessarily outcome, but a different course of the war and a longer war. That's really the argument of our book. Was part of your thesis the fact that the United States would not have, as it did not, would not have automatically declared war on Germany? There obviously were millions of German citizens. There was, I think, was it called the America's First mm-hmm. organization? So, who were preaching American neutrality uh, during the early years of World War II. So, what went through Germany's minds, the minds of the leaders? When the attack happened, and I'm going to say with the lens of inevitability, in other words, it's just a matter of time, so why don't we? Go ahead. So there's a tension in reality, and of course in the book, between on the one hand, the long-term vision of Adolf Hitler, primarily, to a certain extent also the German leadership, and the short-term contingency factors. So really the only person who knew on the 7th of December that Germany was going to go to war with the United States was Adolf Hitler. He had taken that decision quite some time before, for reasons we'll come to later on, I think. But nobody else knew that would happen. Certainly the Americans didn't know, the British didn't know, although they hoped it would happen. The Japanese, although they'd been told by Hitler that he would come into the war, they were not at all convinced. And indeed, there was a lot of heart-searching and anxiety in Tokyo in the four days between September, December the 7th and the declaration of war on the 11th of December. So to understand why Hitler declares war, you have to track back. You have to understand that from Hitler's point of view, he is in important respects already at war with the United States. In his view, and I stress, please, that I'm summarizing his view. I'm I'm not justifying his view. We were trying in the book to get into his head and to explain what otherwise seems like a bizarre and suicidal decision, which is to declare war on the greatest power in the world. Sometimes this is explained by arguing that Hitler, in fact, didn't respect the United States. Hitler had no idea that the United States was so strong, and so on and so forth. That's not the case. As we show in the book, Hitler had a very high regard for the power of the United States, and that's precisely why he declared war on her. Why? Because He was convinced at the latest by the late summer of 1941 that Roosevelt intended at some point in the not too distant future to bring the United States into war with the German Reich. Hitler, you have to remember, was seared by the experience of the First World War when President Wilson had actually brought proactively the United States into war against the German Reich, had then brought the entire force of the United States, its productive capacity, which is already, to a certain extent, producing for the Western allies in the First World War. But then, of course, the American army arrived in France. And Hitler remarks on several occasions in the 1920s on his first encounter with American troops in the summer of 1918 at the Second Battle of the Marne. And he interprets this really as Germany's exported population, these German citizens or descendants, if you like, of Germans, in mm-hmm. the United States, he interprets them as returning to fight the fatherland. So Hitler is, is well aware that America has this immense power, but he is convinced that Roosevelt is against him. He's been convinced since the late 1930s. And therefore, in Hitler's mind, he is engaging in what he would regard as a preemptive strike against Roosevelt. 
by declaring war before Roosevelt is entirely ready, when he is distracted by the Japanese in the Far East, then at least he sees a very sort of narrow uh, window of opportunity for the German Reich to secure its objectives in the Soviet Union, dig in and try to outlast the Anglo-Americans. Looking back on it, as you wrote your book, were there times when you and your writing partner, Professor Leiderman, did you just sometimes shake your head? Like, how could you possibly think this was going to work? Like, you're whatever Hitler was, he's not, he's a terrorist and a murderer, but he wasn't stupid. Like, how can you possibly think this is going to, this strategy is going to play? Well, that's, of course, applying our rationality. Uh, we share in the broad sense a particular view of the world. And to us, you're absolutely right. It seems insane. But of course, from the point of view of his rationality, this is his only chance. Hitler once said in the 1930s that even if you only had 5% chance of success, you should take, take the shot. You should make the move. And he used an analogy with a medical operation. What if you were told, we will do this operation and there's 5% chance of success? If we don't do it, there's a 100% chance of death. We would undertake the operation. And from his point of view, this was, yes, a bit of a long shot, but the only way out of his dilemma, because he was convinced, as I say, the United States is coming in anyway, and therefore he needs to preempt that attack. Now, you and I know that it would have been very difficult for Roosevelt to transcend the America Firsters, to deal with the isolationists, and to cope with the whole narratival problem of declaring war first. Much. And you detail this so well in the book, Hitler's American gamble, Pearl Harbor, and Germany's march to global war. You make a connection that in all my right, all of my uh, reading, uh, I never did. Um, Hitler's connection when it comes to American leadership, resolve, and actions with the idea that Jews controlled America, Jews controlled the businesses. How much did that influence his, that rabid anti-Semitism, how much did that influence his strategic decisions? Hugely. Hitler believed that the world was run by a condominium of what he called the Anglo-Saxon powers, that's the British Empire and the United States, and the forces of international capitalism. And I, I emphasize here international capitalism because Hitler has no issue with what he calls national capitalism, which would be uh, even large firms in Germany, say Krupp, mm -hmm. but international capitalism, and um, particularly the banks, Rothschilds, JP Morgan, these are, in his view, agents of global manipulation, and they are deeply, in his view, interconnected with what he calls world Jewry. And his reading of the First World War and the period leading up to the First World War, and I stress again that I'm summarizing his view, I'm not giving this as a factual account of why the First World War happened or why it ended as it did, but his view was that world Jewry and the British Empire had ganged up to isolate the German Reich, then to hoover up all the world's resources, to mobilize them against the German Reich, to manipulate the United States into the war in 1917, and then indeed to keep Germany enslaved after 1918 and the Versailles Treaty in 1919. Now, in the lead up to the Second World War, Hitler becomes convinced 
that exactly the same thing is to happen is going to happen. Why? Primarily because he sees President Roosevelt as an agent of international jury and in particular of American jury. And when Roosevelt in October 1937 makes a famous speech in Chicago, the so-called quarantine speech, when he talks about the need to, quote, quarantine the dictatorship powers, that is to say, German Reich, Japanese Empire, and Mussolini's um, Italy, Hitler takes this very, very badly and believes that Roosevelt is leaguing uh, with world jury against him. And so he develops also uh, in his mind the idea that European jury could be used as hostages for the good behavior, uh, as he defines it, uh, of uh, the United States. And this is why in January 1939, he makes a famous or notorious speech in the German Reichstag, the German parliament, uh, which he describes as, quote, a warning. And the warning he issues in January 1939 is, he says, if world jury, as he calls them, succeed in plunging Europe into another war, into another world war, then uh, the result will not be uh, the end of the German Reich, uh, but the elimination uh, of European jury. And that is a warning, as he sees it, directed to Roosevelt not to interfere in European affairs. And I think that's one of the main reasons why you have the mass murder of Soviet Jews, which begins immediately in June 1941 with the so-called Einsatzgruppen going in and actually shooting with machine guns, primarily mass shootings of Jews in an annihilatory manner. Whereas in Central and Western Europe, until the beginning of 19, the end of 1941, you have uh, oppression, certainly uh, discrimination, many deaths, but no policy of actual mass murder. And after his declaration of war on the 11th of December, 1941, on the United States, he summons, in fact, he summons in advance for the 12th, that is to say the day after, he summons the political leadership and he tells them, we know this, he says, we warned, I warned the Jews that if there was another world war, they would pay the price. Now we have the world war because when the United States comes in, it's a world war and now they must pay the price. So the connection between the move to the murder of Central and Western European Jewry and the antagonism with the United States is very direct. One of the sentences you write in your book is fascinating, and it says about the connection between the war, as you just described it, and the Holocaust. And you write in your book, when Hitler declared war on the United States, he also pronounced a death sentences, a death sentence on the Jews of Western and Central Europe. Is this, would you consider this new scholarship? Is this something that had been connected by other authors? Because I was stunned when I read it. This has, in fact, been a point made by other scholars who are cited in the footnote. It's a matter of dispute within the, the literature. There are some scholars who link the mass, the, the move to, to complete annihilation to the invasion of the Soviet Union. There are others who believe it, it really was within the uh, long-term logic, in any case, uh, of the Nazi project. And then there are those who say it was a result of despairing at the failure of the offensive in front of Moscow. 
Um, and then there are those who argue, like myself, that uh, this is is directly linked to policy towards the United States. So it's not a new argument. What was novel about Charlie and my own book was that we located that story within the much wider narrative arc of his relationship within the, with the United States, but also its importance within these few days. I believe it was British Foreign Minister Sir Edward Gray described the United States as, quote, a gigantic boiler. Mm. There is no limit to the heat it can produce once lit. Mm-hmm. Hitler, as you said, was wounded, lived through, fought in the First World War. Did he not see the, the forget the fighting potential, just the economic potential? Because the United States at this time is, maybe I'm overstating it, but it's basically keeping Britain in the war. Mm-hmm. It certainly is, is trading with the Soviet Union during that war, that offensive. How, why understand the anti-Semitism and the politics and all that in his worldview, but just pure economic strength, why did he seem to dismiss it? He didn't dismiss it because in his writings, his programmatic writings, he very much emphasizes the power of the United States, which is a, an economic power, as you've described. It has huge resources. He also has huge respect for the Anglo-Saxon racial spine, as he sees it. Of the United States. So these are all factors that weigh very heavily in making him think the United States really is the great power. So if you look, for example, at his second book, which was never published but drafted in the late 1920s, if you look at many uh, speeches and articles in the 1920s, they're all absolutely clear the United States is overwhelmingly powerful. And so this adds even more force then to your question given that was the case, why does he make this decision? It's because he sees this great boiler has, in a sense, already been lit. He's looking at the initial decision in 1939 of the Roosevelt administration to give the Allies, the French, the British, and the French, as it was then, access to what was called cash and carry. So you go mm-hmm. over to the US, you pay for the goods, you transport them over. Then the British start running out of money and out of ships. And you've got the fall of France, and then he introduces the Lend-Lease arrangement, which again, Hitler is very much aware of, and that Lend-Lease is, is slowly but surely, actually quite quickly, by, by the end of 1941, uh, giving uh, the British the kit that, as you say, is keeping them in the war. And he, think, he sees a, this as a continuum. Uh, it's going to get more and more. Roosevelt is going to come into the war. And if you look at certain measures undertaken before belligerency, in the course of 1940 and 1941, beyond the Lend-Lease I've described, you also have, for example, the Destroyers for Bases deal, which gives the British valuable, if rather elderly, destroyers to do escort work. He, Roosevelt, relieves the British garrison in Iceland. Roosevelt's destroyers attack German submarines on the high seas, and Hitler tells them not to retaliate as much as possible because he does not at that point want to provoke the Americans. And perhaps most importantly of all, in terms of the narratival posture, the the messaging, the Atlantic Charter, which is proclaimed in the middle of August 1941, refers explicitly to the reconstruction of the world after the defeat of the dictators. Hitler takes this, as you might imagine, very seriously. This is the United States 
free belligerency, looking forward to the defeat of the German Reich. Obviously, Hitler was paranoid. Obviously, he was irrational. But if you take all these factors, you put them together, you can see why the German dictator felt he had to act uh, the way he did, if you understand his mental framework. How much did Hitler know about the surprise attack, not only in in Pearl Harbor, but the other American and British and Dutch territories in early December? Did he know about it a little bit? Because one of the things that comes out in your book is the fact that for better or worse, the United States and let's say China, perhaps Soviet Union, Great Britain had some coordinated strategy with meetings and the Axis powers had none of that. That's absolutely correct. The contrast is striking and it's even more striking after the 11th of December 1941. Really, the most that they do is that they divide up the world into areas of, of operations. So everything to the west of a line in the Indian Ocean is for the Italians and, and the Germans, and everything to the east of a line is for the Japanese. But even as that was being drawn up, quite quickly is becoming obsolete. Now, as to whether Hitler knew of the attack on Pearl Harbor, he certainly did not know the timing of the attack. And this is clear because he is completely and utterly surprised by it. He is, on the other hand, delighted by it. He has been aware there's something in the offing. He's been asked by the Japanese what he would do if they attacked the British and the Americans, and he has said that he will support them. But he is not aware that the attack is in the offing in that way. He does not have specific forewarning. So he is reacting very much on the hoof. He is in his military headquarters in Rustenburg in eastern Prussia, the so-called Wolf's Lair. And the first thing he has to do is to hop on a train and to get to Berlin and start putting together an overall information strategy to prepare his speech uh, and generally get ready uh, for war with the United States. And all of that would be things, stuff that he would have done uh, quite a lot earlier had he known that the attack was going in. The Japanese didn't trust him, for one thing. (laughs) Why would they? The Soviets did, and look what happened. No, exactly. Perhaps they did. uh, That that point was made uh, on a number of occasions by the Japanese themselves, who indeed were shocked by the Hitler-Stalin pact. In fact, one of the Japanese governments fell over the pact because they hadn't foreseen it. So the Japanese didn't trust him. And indeed, a number of Japanese figures actually spoke about the danger of what they called racial abandonment. In other words, that Hitler might use this opportunity of war between the United States and the British Empire against Japan to basically have a compromise with the British and then join up against the Asiatic uh, Japanese. Mm -hmm. In that sense, Tokyo was not about to warn Berlin what was going to happen. And then they had a rather awkward four days as they kept on asking, when are you going to honour your promise? And huge relief then on the 11th of December when the declaration of war follows. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Brendan Sims. He's a professor of international, the history of international relations at the University of Cambridge. And he's very kindly going to give us a few more minutes via Zoom. You mentioned a few minutes ago, we're talking about his book, Hitler's American Gamble, Pearl Harbor and Germany's March to Global War. His co-author is Charlie Laterman, also a professor. You mentioned it a few minutes ago. Germany's progress, or lack thereof, 
in Operation Barbarossa against the Soviet Union. When the Pearl Harbor happens, is this about the time when Germany gets stalled and has to rethink how the rest of the war is going to go? We all know that uh, Japanese and Soviets had clashed in Manchuria. Forget the War of 1905 for a second. But how did what was happening in the Soviet Union affect Hitler's decision when it comes to December 11th? That's a really important question. And the thing that's critical to understand is that the German offensive has already run out of steam in the Soviet Union. It's stalled in the south, in front of Rostov. It's stalled in front of Leningrad. And in particular, it's stalled in front of uh, Moscow. Then follows, on the 4th and 5th of December, a fairly large-scale Russian counterattack. And 10 days after that, Hitler orders a halt to operations in the Soviet Union. Now, the reason for doing that was not actually the Soviet offensive. It's often thought to be the case, but actually we know that the sheer extent of that offensive was not realized by the German high command until quite a way in. The reason for the stalling of the offensive, in the, in the, it partly runs out of steam beforehand, but the strategic decision to pause and to attack again in, in, in the spring is actually the attack, the looming war with the United States. That's the context to, to make a pause and then to resume offensive operations in the spring. On the Soviet side, by the way, the Japanese attack also causes consternation because there's quite a lot of worry that the Lend-Lease supplies are going to be diverted into the Pacific. And indeed, we found, we cited in the book, some interesting evidence of this. First of all, it's raised on a number of occasions by Soviet diplomats with their American interlocutors. But even it even reached the extent that uh, propaganda materials that were going out to the Red Army on the front, which had frequently asked questions. And one of them was, won't the Americans be sending more, ki uh, more kits to the Pacific and less to us because of what the Japanese have done? So it's clearly uh, an anxiety. And so nobody was more relieved than Stalin, apart from Churchill, of course, uh, <laughs> they were more relieved than Stalin on the 11th of December because the declaration of war by Hitler and the United States, first of all, meant that the Americans would be less distracted. And secondly, relieve the pressure on him from the Americans to come into the war against the Japanese, which had been a factor in the intervening period. Was there any diplomatic effort worthy of the name that could have avoided a German declaration of war in December of 41? There wasn't really. The reason being that actually the Hitler was intent, for the reasons I've given, on making that declaration of war. Roosevelt certainly was looking for that declaration of war. I don't mean by that to, to blame him for the war, but there's no question that Hitler's declaration of war was going to let him off the hook and solve all kinds of problems in the United States for him. And the Japanese, of course, were not <laughs> looking for any such mediation either. Really, the only people who could perhaps have launched such a mediation would have been the Italians. And indeed, the Italians were extremely worried by what was going on. And there, we cite examples in the book of when the Japanese 
and the German diplomats are, are, are conveying what's going to happen to the Italians, the interpreter, quote, was shaking like a leaf. He was so mm. afraid of the prospect mm. of war with the United States. But Mussolini basically didn't have any interest either. In the end, despite perhaps some elements within the Italian system who would have preferred to have avoided this war, they went along as well. There were actually no diplomatic options. Did anyone inside Germany, um, I'm going to say, stand up to Hitler or say, Defier, think this over very carefully? Are you sure? And was anyone, I know we fought with his generals all the time, but just from a diplomatic sort of or political sense, mm -hmm. did anyone say, don't, please don't do this? No. And that, again, is a reflection of how things have changed. Because if you think back to 1938, there were huge objections, particularly from the military, to the idea of war with uh, Britain and France over, over Czechoslovakia. In the winter of 1939, there were massive objections. First of all, there were some doubts about the attack on Poland. There were massive objections in the winter 1939 to the military operation, which led to the fall of France. But the result, of course, of Hitler being in commas, right on all those issues was that by the time we reach December 1941, and the so-called Fuhrer is about to take a truly insane decision, you then have a corresponding lack of appetite on the part of the military and political leadership to contradict him. We look pretty closely at the documents. Nobody, not Goering, not Goebbels, uh, none of the military people, they, none of them say we should not do this. Indeed, there were elements within the Navy who actually welcomed the Declaration War. And that's because, as I mentioned before, they regarded themselves as being basically already at war with the United States. And this meant now they could take the gloves off and shoot back at the Americans who were attacking them in, in, in the Atlantic Ocean. So it was a real dereliction of duty, if you like, by the German political leadership, which by then had become completely a pawn in Hitler's mm. hands, in a way that wasn't quite true in the mid or late 1930s. What, what's Eric von Ludendorff's quote about World War I, when the United States get in? We cannot fight the whole world. Mm. Obviously, that was lost. I have one more question before we get to the five questions we ask everyone to be mindful of your time and respectful of, of you taking care of us today but your marvelous book, Hitler's American Gamble. Did the distance between Germany and the United States influence Hitler's drive to build all his super weapons? Yes. So he planned to build an airplane that would make it to the United States, the so-called America bomber. And some of the thinking around rockets was also influenced by that. The move into North Africa and the thinking around possible occupation of Morocco and the Azores, Canaries, as jumping off points against the United States. These were all factors, but they were not terribly serious plans. Basically, Hitler accepted that he could not really hit the United States. So he had no plan. This is the fascinating and, and, and really uh, striking thing. He had no military, no operational plan for defeating the United States. He knew that was not possible. There's a great uh, encounter he has with the Japanese ambassador to Berlin, mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Oshima, General Oshima. And the record of that meeting at the beginning of 1942, shortly after the declaration of war, it simply says, 
the Pharaoh said to Oshima, how I will defeat the United States, that I cannot tell you yet. Which is pretty horrendous, if you think about it, that you actually have no viable strategy, even in your own mind, for defeating the enemy. I have to give a footnote or credit to one of the absolute best books I've ever read in my entire life, and that's Victor Davis Hanson's The Second World Wars. It's I'd love to have him on the podcast, obviously, but he makes that point in his book. And I thought it is interesting. Like, how exactly are you going to get at the enemy? You can't even you can't even cross the channel, let alone the Atlantic Ocean. One last question before the five questions. It's a what if. Hitler says, I don't want any part of the United States. We may be at war with them, a phony war, for lack of a better term, but I got big problems in the Soviet Union. And so is there a is there a scholastic what if there there certainly is if if he had not declared war on the united states on the 11th of december or indeed at any point thereafter it's quite difficult to see how roosevelt would have brought the united states into direct conflict with the german right he might have been able to do it would have been much harder and in particular given the way in which the pacific war then went which was initially very badly all of wake island with uh, fall of the Philippines, fall of Singapore, and so on and so forth, it would have been politically very difficult to maintain even the existing Lend-Lease transfer. In fact, Lend-Lease was briefly paused on the 8th of December because the American chiefs of staff are saying, we have no kit, or the kit we have Mm -hmm. will be needed to fight the Japanese. The counterfactual can be developed in many different directions, but what I think is fairly clear is that the war in Europe would have lasted an awful lot longer because the United States would have struggled to gain traction in in Europe. The war in the Far East might have been shorter. So you could envisage a situation where perhaps the atomic bomb would have been dropped on, on, on Germany rather than the United States. That's actually was going to be my last, in this counterfactual that you're describing, does, if we're not at war with Germany, does Einstein write the letter to Roosevelt, and or does Germany get the bomb first? Yeah, that's that is another possibility. But the, of course, the difficulty with counterfactuals that they're very interesting to ask, and I think they illuminate actually a lot of things for the historian in, in the way that I hope we've just shown. But at a certain point, then also, it becomes difficult to follow the threads. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests, and that would include, I imagine, friends of Professor Sims like Tracy Borman and Gareth Russell, Helen Rappaport. So many of your colleagues and and historians over in Britain have answered these, so I'll make them very quick. Number one, what was your first job? My first job was as a research fellow at Christchurch, Oxford. Number two, what was your first concert? Goodness. I can't remember. I, I, I think it was, it was Helen Rappaport has the unbeatable answer. If Dr. Rappaport, her first concert was the Beatles in a pub in some town in 1962. I've never been to a pop concert. So perhaps that will serve as an answer. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, if you could book, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? I think the book that is the absolute standout book, the book that I wish I had read is... That's a great way to put it, yeah. Paul Kennedy's Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. 
And if you want to have a novel, I would say The Leopard by Lampedusa. When I came out of the army in 1990, Professor Kennedy's book was the first one I read. It's a little, maybe it's a little out of date with the Japanese part, but it's, it was certainly on point at the time. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? I think probably the Battle of Waterloo, by which I've written the book. I'd like want- to be in the farmhouse at, at La Haye Sainte. As long as the outcome was the same? Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record just to chat, whom would you choose? I think Xi Jinping, provided he gave me an honest answer. Chances of that being? Zero. (laughs) (laughs) You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmont Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Professor Brendan Sims, and we discussed his book. It's terrific. If you want to understand why World War II ended the way it did, Read Hitler's American Gamble, Pearl Harbor, and Germany's March to Global War. Professor Sims, thank you so much for your time and Zooming from Cambridge. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.